0: this week on Writers Inc. And I and my brother-in-law used to say to me, he's like a business guy, and he always said, where do you want to see yourself in 10 years? And I would never, always be like, I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? I don't have no idea. And it finally took me a long time to realize that what I like is being 50 pages into a book and then being like, "Huh, oh, what's gonna happen next?
1: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets, What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inn. JD, what's going on, man? Oh, you know, nothing much. Just, uh, you know, at Home Depot, had to get a, you know, I don't know. Uh, Everybody, welcome to the JD Barker roast episode. We were supposed (laughs) to talk to Brad Meltzer today, but he understood that we, you know, JD, we had to roast JD today instead. So (laughs) i'm just joking we're still totally talking to brad but jd's not here no no uh we we won't reveal why we'll we'll just call it a personal issue
2: uh he's not able to make it i think i'm pretty sure this is the first episode out of the hundred and some we've done um that he hasn't been on it so we want to take every opportunity to
1: make fun of him at every possible moment absolutely yeah (laughs) i'm i'm really disappointed because i don't have like I haven't bought a home, I'm not doing construction, I'm not like I don't have crappy neighbors, like what are we going to talk about? I don't
2: know, like I don't have I'm not writing books with Patterson. Um, I'm not, yeah, uh, I'm not waiting on a call King. from Jim.
1: <laughs> like, you know. Um you know, maybe maybe Uncle Jim or something like that, but <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> We better stop. <laughs> We're going to say something he's going to be mad about if we keep going. Yeah, I'm
2: not editing this, so we should
1: stop. No no we're hey, not i, editing this I was
2: almost going to open it with a uh, welcome to the career author podcast career author.
1: <laughs> i was thinking that same thing i was like we're having a career author reunion episode we can tell jd so, we totally
2: changed the branding since he wasn't here he, we yeah, thought he'd be okay. your best
1: book cover in 2022 <laughs> here today on career author episode 151 <laughs> look back baby oh what are you working on man what do you got going on these days man i'm getting i'm I'm uh I'm near the end of my of uh, I'm almost ready to send uh Dead South Book Six, uh, which is officially called Dead War. Um, it's getting trick so my titling is getting tricky. Yes. Because I started out I knew every it was gonna be Dead Something. You know, like the first book's Dead South. I knew it was gonna be Dead Something. Well, I got like three or four books in, and I realized that the second word was one syllable for all the other books. So I was like. And I was going to call a book. I think I was going to name, well, I don't want to throw titles out there, but like I had two syllable words. I was like, I can't do that now. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, well, now I have to stick with the one syllable. So, cause I knew, you know, I had dead South, um, uh, and you know, there's like dead lies, dead hope, dead, you know, past. The last book is called dead end. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, so it's getting tricky to, to name these books now, but I'm almost there, man. I got a great cover, um, and I'm really happy with the story. And I'm—I tell you what—I'm really happy with. I'm really, I'm hoping it pays off, um, in the end because I'm—I'm going to be really interested to see what my editor says. But I love this process of editing as I go. Like it is completely. I don't know. I feel like it's just rejuvenated me because I know that when I'm done with this draft here in a week or so, I'm just going to turn it into her and I'm not going to go back. And l- I'm, I'm. there's a few things I've made notes about that I want to go fix really quick and like a few things I want to change, um, but they're simple, but <clears throat> I'm going to give it to her. And she's edited so many of my books at this point. I'm not going to say anything. And then when I'm done, I'm be like, hey, did that feel different? Like, was it? And kind of get her feedback and, and then tell her what I did and be like, okay, you know, that, well, that works out then. And if she comes back and is like, yeah, I don't know, this, you know, then I need to adjust. But if it's, if she feels like it's about the same, I'm gonna continue with this process for the next book and see what happens. i'm re- I'm really enjoying it.
2: I think it's a great approach. Uh, I'm for for a different project, I'm doing some research on creativity. And one of the things uh, that I've found is that it's important to have systems and it's important to have consistency. And at the same time, it's important to then change it up. and And people have a hard time with that, right? Like you get locked into a certain way of doing things, and then that's all they want to do forever but really the the true trick to creativity is doing something for a while and changing it and then doing something for a while and changing it. So I love the, I love that you're sort of experimenting here. You're you're trying something a little different and also not mentioning to your editor is a great, great idea, because now you're going to get a really unbiased honest uh, answer to that question.
1: Yeah. I'm really, I'm I'm really excited about it. I mean, and and like you said, I mean, this isn't going to be my process forever. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, like you said, I, I think it's good to change every now and then, but, um, it's just been like, I, I tell you I've had like, and, and I've had a lot of other like outside things going on, but I've had like the most productive two last two weeks I've had in a long time. And I had, I'm actually going to record um, a solo episode of creator dad about this. And I'm going to talk about uh, like productivity and stuff with like, kind of give my like talk on it without talking to somebody else, um, you know, with other responsibilities and kids and stuff. But like, It's really weird. I watched this, like I I watched this YouTube video where this dude talked about how he studies like first the so amount of time a day. And like, like something clicked with me when I watched this video and like, I've just, I've been so freaking productive, like implementing some of the things that he said. And they were little dumb things like, like in the morning, when you come to sit down for your desk, to your desk, like bring snacks, And because you're not, then you don't have to get up and go to the kitchen when you're going to like maybe talk to my wife or be like, oh, there's dishes there. They're bothering me. I need to get them in the dish. like you're not going to get distracted. You know, you don't give yourself any reason to get up and move to to go somewhere else unless I have to go to the bathroom. I haven't solved that yet. I just bring a bucket Um, for under my desk. I mean, I thought about it, (laughs) but my luckily (laughs) luckily the bathroom is right outside this door. So that's not, I can get there and back without any distractions, but um, but it, dude, it's, it's the, it's, li- that's just one thing, but it's just some really little things. And I've been able to like, um, basically every day, uh, in the last two weeks I've worked, I've had like five and six hour days. Like, and I'm, when I say that, I mean like solid, like I with without a lot, without much distraction, like really focused work. And it has been so fulfilling and just i feel better and it's just it's been awesome excellent cool man that's good to hear i'm finally catching up to you and your super productivity (laughs) so well uh what have you been working on man
2: yeah uh i want to give a quick shout out to death wish coffee Uh, they're not sponsors maybe they should be uh death wish coffee claims to have the strongest coffee on the planet and i uh i will every so often i get a uh, tension headache uh, for those who have never had one, basically a tension headache kind of starts in your eye, and then it goes around, and it usually ends up in the base of your neck on one side or the other, and it's almost always from uh, stress or poor posture, because it's a, it's a, muscle, it's a muscle thing. And uh, I, I, I've always known that caffeine helps with headaches, because it uh, increases blood flow. But again, like if you ingest ca- caffeine on a regular basis, you already have a baseline, and caffeine's not going to help you if you have a headache. Well, because I drink mostly decaf, but maybe four or five times a week I'll have a cup of regular coffee. Caffeine really still gives me a jolt, and I felt it coming on this morning. And it normally it wrecks my whole day, like because I can't look at a screen, I can't look at bright light, like it's painful. Yeah. So I immediately before I even got breakfast i drank a cup of death wish coffee and man it knocked that that headache out in like 10 that's minutes That's awesome yeah i was like all right can't do it every day well luckily i don't no. get those headaches every day but i just want to give a shout out to death wish i thought that was pretty cool
1: nice that's awesome yeah right on. yeah a
2: little little tip for you guys uh in other news um it's been it's been a few weeks as we're recording this, but I, I kind of wanted to wait for the dust to settle, and just briefly talk about the BookCoin uh, initial drop with the Mark Manson NFT, which was crazy. It was it was crazy cool. Like it was just neat to be part of it, kind of a fly on the wall and, and watch what's happening. Uh, you know, technically it wasn't a it wasn't a perfect mint. They had issues like Putin decided to invade Ukraine on the same day that they were going to have their drop. Like little things like that. Um, had, they had a few technical issues they worked through, but, uh, but basically um, kind of watch that whole thing. Mark Manson was in the Discord. He was kind of commenting. Uh, they're creating a club around it. So um, if you're not familiar, the, the, the Subtle Art book, He what he did is he pulled uh, 1,111 quotes out of that book and made each one an NFT, and they're all unique. And uh, if you own the NFT, now you don't own the book, but what you own is your phrase. So you could take the phrase, the quote from the book, you can put that on a hat, on merchandise, as long as you have Mark Manson's name on it, you can do whatever you want with it. So it's pretty cool. Um, The other part of it is there's a bit of a, sort of a, a gaming aspect to it. When you mint, you don't know which one you're gonna get. Uh, and so it's totally luck. Whichever, like as you hit the as you hit the um, you know the minting site, whatever you get, you get. And so that that creates a lot of excitement. It was just really cool. Um, I ended up with three. <laughs> I was I, I promised myself I wasn't gonna do go more than three, but but I got three, uh, and it was good for me as um, as sort of a participant to kind of see it from that side. And uh, I think there's going to be some historical relevance to this because he will have been the, and he was the very first, you know, New York times, number one, New York times bestseller uh, to fractionalize a book on the blockchain. So if folks want to check it out, there'll be a link in the show notes. It's um, my, you can view my wallet contents at openc.io slash J And you can see the three uh,
1: subtle art NFTs there. If you, if you want to check them out. That's interesting. I'm, I'm really interested to see where all this is going to go. Like, I've talked to you privately and I asked you a question that I think still is yet to be answered is uh, like, as, as we as authors look at the NFT and we look at the blockchain stuff, like I I know how writers authors are reacting and content creators, but how are the readers going to react? Like, I think that that is still because I'm, and, you know, and, and you're talking about a different type of crowd here, but I'm seeing how it's happening in the video game industry when all these companies are trying to do NFTs and they're immediately backing out of it because of the backlash. Is just, and and a, a lot of it is because the people just don't understand what it is. Like they they think it's a JPEG or some item they can get in a game that they're trying to get fleeced for. Like I think it's gonna take somebody coming along and you know doing something like that like no you own this or this is like an investment or something like that like you know um i don't know it's i'm but i'm really interested to see how it's going to be when because i know authors are excited and i think you know and and who would i wonder what a lot of crowd was who got the mark manson one like if there are other creators and stuff like that so i'm i don't know i think i'm interested to see how it's gonna yeah
2: i I don't want to i don't want to say his name because i don't i don't i don't know if it matters but i just I, I better not just in case but um we have a mutual friend someone that you connected me with who's uh deep deep into this space and i was talking to him Very yesterday deep, yeah. and uh and he was saying like from his what he's seeing and i think i would i would uh, i would echo this uh, uh observation is that the nfts that are being put out by celebrities and corporations are falling totally flat yeah, uh, it's just, it, and it, it that's pretty consistent, right? Like if you think about social media, people follow other people; they don't follow corporate accounts by and large, and and so I think for the, in the video game industry, I would imagine that's what's happening. Is there's there's this sort of immediate visceral response of like this is another product, and I'm not interested. Whereas the independent creators uh, and and those types of folks who are releasing NFTs are are doing really incredible stuff. So I think that's. That seems to be the trend right now from what I can tell.
1: Yeah, and it's it, it has been co- like some of the bigger companies so far, but there have, you know, they, they were the bigger companies in, in the gaming industry like Ubisoft and EA, like companies that people already hate and Konami were kind of the companies that initially came out with it and got a lot of crap. Um, but but there's been a few indies too who've backpedaled. and I'm I, I, But I think it's going to take... Um, you know approaching it approaching it a different way um to 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 bust through and and also it's just going to take time and education like you know if this is something that's really going to be around and i know you've hedged your bets in that and think that this is totally where we're going and um You know, if that's the case, it's just, you know, it's early. A lot of things aren't understood early, you know, and and get and get a lot of backlash. And it's just going to it's just going to take time and educate and people learning. So,
2: yeah. Yeah. So if if you're sitting there as an author and you're not really sure how this applies to you at all, just kind of keep one eye on it. You know, you don't have to do anything right now, but just pay attention to what's happening because I really do believe that the blockchain is going to become a ubiquitous part of our experience, the same way the internet did, and uh, and the everyday person will be will be functioning and transacting on the blockchain without even knowing it, and uh, and I think that's I think that adoption is going to come faster than any other technical adoption in the history of the world. So uh, don't panic, um, and and uh, don't bring out pitchforks. Just Pay attention to what's going on and, uh, you know, just read a little bit and stay in touch with it because I, I do think it's going to matter to all of us pretty soon. Yeah.
1: Be open-minded. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: Well, hey, let's give a great shout out to our sponsors, Kobo Writing Life. It is March Madness, and they are sponsoring an incredible Kobo e-reader giveaway. So if you want to have a shot at winning a Kobo Clara HD eBook reader, Uh, During the month of March on any of the episodes, just leave a comment and tell us why you love Kobo so much. And everyone who leaves a comment will be entered into a random drawing to win that Kobo Clara HD. So there will be a link in the show notes. If you have not yet signed up for Kobo Writing Life to publish your books, you can do that at KoboWritingLife.com where you have no exclusivity, no long-term agreements that you have to sign, and it's a book-by-book basis, so make sure you check out our wonderful sponsors. And we also want to remind folks that if you want to submit questions to our monthly Q&A episode, you can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. We really appreciate all of our patrons who support us. Uh, those patron dollars help to pay the hosting costs and the admin cost to put on the podcast because, as you know, podcasts are free. So thank you to our patrons who uh, help us with that. All right, so Jay, who do we got today?
1: <laughs> I had to get in and do you it, so. it. You did it. You did it. I know way how did, this works. Way
2: to go, man! Uh, yeah. We are going to uh, hear from Brad Melter. Um, Brad is—I I don't even know how to describe. He is unbelievable. I mean, yeah. Um, I, we'll, we'll hit more specifics after we talk to him, but he is—he's really a writer amongst writers. I mean, this guy has had success as. Uh, he writes novels, he writes nonfiction. he works on comic books, he does children's books, uh, he does speaking, I mean, he he does it all, and he does it all at like a world-class level. Um, he's had some incredible experiences. Uh, he's got a new book coming out, which uh, I think we'll probably talk, be talking about. Um, so yeah, let, let's, uh, let's listen, hear from Brad, and then we'll come back on the flip side and talk about the interview. Here you go, folks, Brad Meltzer. So I heard you have a new children's book about Santa Claus that has already been banned. Is that true?
0: I mean, it feels like it these <laughs> days, brother. Uh, I mean, it really does. I mean, we, I, I wrote, obviously I write thrillers and murder people all day long. Um, and nothing goes better with murder than children's books, but I, I wrote, I am Rosa Parks and I am Martin Luther King Jr. With my buddy Chris Eliopoulos is the amazing artist on these kids books and they banned Rosa Parks and Dr. King. I think Santa's not far behind.
2: <laughs> I, I, it's a crazy story. I mean, it, it almost it's almost laughable, but it's true. Uh, I, and I know you had a great response to it. I saw you on Kelly Clarkson talking about it. Can you, can you explain a little bit more what happened and, and what you did? Yeah.
0: I mean, basically what happened was is um, a school board in, in York County, Pennsylvania, saw identified 200 books were identified as being good for a diversity list to help kids talk about race. Of course, you're going to put Dr. King and Rosa Parks on there. And it wasn't, you know, our books that had books by Malala, um, an adaptation of Hidden Figures. I mean, good stuff that everyone knows and acknowledges is good for kids. And the school board said, we want to read these books first before we put them in kids' hands, which again, you want to do. You want to make sure what you're putting in kids' hands is, is read. The tricky thing that the school board did is they waited a year. Didn't read the books for a year. So what started as a freeze, you know, hold them until we read them, became a ban. No one can touch them. And so for a year, teachers don't know if they can use them or anything. And obviously the school went bananas. The kids went bananas. I went on, you know, Fox News and CNN NSM MSNBC and and, and when those three agree, you know you screwed up, right? Like, you know they pushed too far. So I went to the school board meeting, uh, read from I Am Rosa Parks, one of my favorite lines in there, it says, uh, I'm not a famous business person, I'm not a famous politician, I'm just a regular, I'm just an ordinary person, and I'm proof that there's no such thing as an ordinary person. I said, this is what you're denying, your kids in your school board. And I thought I had saved the day. And then all of a sudden the students started speaking after me, and amazing teachers and moms, a member of the military who said, I'm so embarrassed of my school, I used to go here, look what you did. And they, we shamed the school, board into it. The truth is the kids saved the day. They were incredible. Uh, and yes, it was overturned. Now the books are back. But as the midterm elections approach, we're just going to see more of this. And I'm sorry, but if you're cheering for books to be pulled off of library shelves, you're on the wrong side of history.
2: It's, it certainly seems as though that's been the case. I mean, if you look back at the books that have been banned throughout history, they're kind of head scratchers. I mean, listen,
0: the first book, that America bans on a national level, historians believe, is Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Why did they ban it? Because people in the South thought that they didn't—they didn't like the fact that it discussed slavery being bad. They didn't like that it discussed abolitionist ideas. They didn't like that it threatened their way of life. It's no different today. It's no different when they banned Huck Finn. It's no different when they ban, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Anything else whether it's records in the 80s or rap music in the 90s or whatever you go to band, eventually you're revealed as the bad guy because all those bands are about is about people who are worried about their power. They're worried about their power being taken away and their way of life shifting. Um, but here's the thing, nothing can stop an
2: idea. Nothing's more powerful. Don't you remember back in the day when we were kids and you, you went to the record store and you saw the sticker on it and what did you want to do more than anything?
0: Nothing. The parental advisory. People wear the parental advisory. I mean, there's a there's, you know, in comic books, we have the Comics Code Authority. I mean, anytime there's a code or a, or a someone or a censor, sign me up. Every time they ban a book, they just ban New Kid by um, Jerry Craft. I bought a copy that day. Every time I see a book ban, the first thing I do, OK, fine. One for me. I'll donate it right to my library and I'm going to put it in someone's hand. So keep banning that all you want
2: and we'll keep fighting. Love it. Well, let's talk a little bit about books that are on the shelf. You got a brand new one out, a uh, book two in the escape artist series, the lightning rod. Tell us about Zig and Nola's newest adventure.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, you never have to read any of the books in any order. You can read the lightning rod uh,
2: cold on its own. And the book opens
0: with one of my great fears. A character hands his car keys over to the valet at a restaurant and the valet takes the keys Instead of driving the car to the parking lot, he hits the GPS in the car. He says the magic words, go home. And now he's driving to the man's house with his car keys and, of course, his house keys. This is a robbery. But as he goes in, the robber and the valet goes to break into the man's house. There's a man waiting inside for him with a gun. This is not a robbery at all. It's a trap. And when the bodies start turning up and everyone's shot, one of those bodies... They quickly trace to one of the government's most closely guarded secrets, and that's what I just ruined chapter one of the Lightning Rod for you. But but what the book asks is, what is the secret that you have that no one else knows? What's your best secret? And that's where the Lightning Rod begins.
2: It is a heartstopper. Uh, absolutely loved it. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything uh, for readers, but I will ask you this: uh, Were you out in the in the fields of New Jersey scouting locations for this book?
0: So let me, let's talk about that. So okay. I, um, I, one of the things I became obsessed with, you know, I've done the secret tunnels below the White House. I've done the labyrinth below the Capitol. I've even done the hidden city below Disney World in Orlando. It's a fun one. And I found out that the US government has 12, about a dozen um, warehouses that are hidden, secret warehouses all across the country to fight back against bioterrorist attacks, whether it's Zika, whether it's anthrax, whether it's smallpox, wherever you live, New York, the Pacific Northwest, Texas, wherever you are, if there's a bioterrorist attack within four hours from one of those warehouses, you will get the antidotes. And it's an amazing thing. I'm like, you're telling me, the government has secret warehouses, no one knows what's in them, you can't go in them, I gotta go in them. So I use these, it's called the strategic national stockpile. I use one of those warehouses in, in the lightning rod and when you're getting to those scenes at the end of the book, I obviously moved the note location. I didn't want to reveal the real place it was, but where you see, what you see inside that warehouse, I did not make up. That is really what's in there and super well described. And I love the fact that when you get to that final scene, what you see inside there is really what's inside there. That's not fiction. Even though the book is a thriller, of course, that part's totally real.
2: It was such a great payoff. And I, like I said, I, I won't spoil. But I, as I was reading it, I was thinking back to, I, I think it might have been an appearance on James Altucher's show where you talked about your meeting with the Department of Homeland Security where they were asking you to brainstorm <laughs> possible terrorist attacks. And I, I know that was a few years ago. Have any of those, to, to your knowledge, uh, come to fruition? You know, there was one...
0: the rule was, right, they brought me in to brainstorm different ways terrorists could attack the United States. And I I really did think, like, if they're calling me, we have bigger problems than anybody (laughs) thinks, right? Like, we're screwed. If you think we're screwed now, we're really screwed. Um, And the truth was, is they never, we couldn't tell anyone what what ideas we came up with. We could talk about the process, but we could never tell anyone. And there was one thing, I, I never picked it on the money, or I would know, of course, but there was one thing that I was like, that was a little bit of one of the things we talked about. And, and it was kind of like, there, there are, you know, they would pair me with a secret service agent and a chemist. And these chemists were just dangerous as mothers, you know, like it, they're incredible. Um, I think the scary thing for me was not about if I got it right or wrong. What was scary for me is they started calling me again. So after I did my duty and like went into the government and helped them brainstorm, they called me like a couple of weeks later, they're like, we have another scenario for you. And now I'm like, uh-oh, was I right? did I say something that was good? Did I like, and you know, now they're calling me before a big event in America that's about to happen. And I'm like, do I have family at that event? Do I have to tell them something? Do you know something I don't know? Or are we still playing a game here? And that was, that was a creepy night because you're just like, you, you don't know what you don't know.
2: Wow. So what did you, I mean, how do you get through a night like that? You just sit and wait
0: No, you do whatever I do every night, which is I worry. I mean, that's right. (laughs) Thriller novelists, you know better than anyone. Thriller novelists, they all say that, you know, they love this stuff. Like,
2: we're all paranoid.
0: That's how we do the job. Our job is to take whatever scenario is there and turn it into the worst thing that could happen. And my kids are so tired of her. I mean, they're like, and even down to like, my kids tease me about locking a bike, right? They're like, I'm like, lock your bike up. They're like, no one's going to steal the bike. I'm like, you got to like your bike up. They're like, someone could come and lock up your helmet. They're like, no one's stealing the bike at Target, Dad. It's fine here. I'm like, and I'm like, it's going to get stolen. And like, I can just always see that worst case. It's what lets me do my job. I firmly believe that your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness. Um, so it is my great strength, but it is certainly also my great weakness.
2: Now I know that you had your uh, your son read the first chapter of Lightning Rod. Was he like, "Oh, Dad, why are you worrying about that? People don't do that." Or was he like, "Wow, that's a good one, Dad." It's funny, my my
0: son and he's and I'm glad you brought that up. He he picked up the first uh, advanced reading copy of Lightning Rod, and he we were on vacation. and said, "I'm taking this," and I was like, "Oh crap!" Because my kids don't care about anything I do. Yeah. No no kid Sorry. and no kid and that's a good thing. No kid should ever be impressed by their parents, right? And which is good. It keeps you humble. It keeps you steady. And my, and I'm literally having a heart. I mean, you can review me in the New York times and you know, pick any big shop place that have given me reviews over the years. Nothing worried me more than my own son reading that opening chapter with the valet and the car keys. And I'm just breathlessly, I was sitting next to him actually on the lounge chair and he turns to me and he's like, great opening. And I was like, okay, I survived chapter one. Here we go. And he's now, he's, he's actually, uh, Got 50 pages left. He's been actually like milking it, which is pretty good. He's like enjoying it. And he says he really likes it and he really likes scenes. But what, you know, what's so funny to me is I get more stressed about my own kid than anyone else. My daughter, um, I will say, I think she she's she understands that paranoia when it comes to me. She makes fun of it, but I do think she gets it in a way that the other kids don't.
2: Yeah, I, I was just uh, smirking as I read that because I've had a similar experience with my kids. And, and uh, I, I was talking to someone and they said, you know, what do you think it would be like? You know, what, what would it be like in Dave Grohl's household? How do his kids see him I'm like, as dad. Like, they're probably That's not it. impressed Nobody at cared. All, right? my, my
0: daughter said to me, why doesn't anyone want you to sign their book? And I was like, you do know what feeds you, right? You do know what I do for a living. Like, she just, uh, and nor should she care. She's just laughs at it.
2: <laughs> I can totally relate. So, how does this, uh, this level of anxiety, uh, for me, as as a fellow historian, I always feel like that's what drives my passion in history. So, can you talk about that intersection between maybe your anxiety, your research, and your and your love of history?
0: I mean, you know, I, I it's funny when uh, my my I once plotted an entire book where I said, I'm gonna plot the whole thing, one sitting. And it was no fun at all to write. It became paint by numbers. It was just like, okay, chapter one to two to two to three. There was no spontaneity, it was nothing, it just sat down. And I and my brother-in-law used to say to me, he's like a business guy, and he always say, where do you wanna see yourself in 10 years? And I would never, I was like, I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? I don't have no idea. And it finally took me a long time to realize that what I like is being 50 pages into a book and then being like, huh, oh, what's gonna happen next? I finally realized after 25 years of doing this, I don't want to know the end of the story. What's the fun of being in a story where you know the ending? And that's really kind of the you know, the approach about life is if you knew how it was all gonna happen, what's the fun of that? And and so all I do is follow to answer your question is I follow those things I love. I just happen to love history. You happen to love history. I will, you know, I happen to love not just that secret warehouse, but why did the government invent it? When did it come? Who had the idea for it? And that story is just as fascinating as what's inside it because it comes from this amazing place. And so for me, I I love that. I love, love, love that. That's That's cool to me.
2: Well, and you've, you've taken this approach not in, only in your fiction, but in your nonfiction as well. And you're one of the very few people I've ever known who have been commercially successful on both sides of that coin. So for your, uh, let's say you're, you're writing about these, um, you know, assassination plots. Do you know about those ahead of time? Or you do you discover those in the process? Uh, it all depends
0: on the, So the first conspiracy. So I, yes, I also do, in addition to thrillers like the lightning rod, I do nonfiction adult books with my buddy, Josh Mensch. We do, we did the first conspiracy about a secret plot to kill George Washington, uh, which really happened at the start of the revolutionary war. We did the Lincoln conspiracy about a plot to kill Abraham Lincoln, not the John Wilkes Booth one, but one at the beginning of his presidency that he, um, in, in Baltimore, they tried a group of, uh, And uh, I almost said anti-Semites. That would have been a totally different Civil War. (laughs) Um, But uh, basically like white supremacists tried to kill Abraham Lincoln when he came through Baltimore as he goes to be sworn in as our 16th president. It's an amazing story. I knew about the Washington story just because I was obsessed with it for like a decade. And I just, every time I had free time, I would research it. The Lincoln one we found, the one that's in the next one, I knew. Um, And so little by little, you know, it, it, my own love of history, as I'm sure with yours, uh, you just come across these things and I just stop. I always know that the answer is something I got to work on when two weeks later or three weeks later, I'm still thinking about it. And if I'm still thinking about it, I'm still Googling it after that initial, like deep dive rabbit hole, it means I'm getting obsessed with it. And that's when I just turn the ship and say, let me try that. Cause I, you know, I use the Washington, you know, George Washington secret spying. I found that and um, and I love the fact that George Washington had his own secret spiring during the Revolutionary War. In fact, I, I found it around the time when I was doing that work for the government. And I said to my friend, why'd you hire me? Of all the people you could bring in to brainstorm different ways to terrorists attack the United States, why'd you bring me? And I traced it back through history to George Washington, who used to hire ordinary people for his own private spiring because he knew no one looks twice at an ordinary person. And I said to my buddy in Homeland Security, wouldn't it be cool if you found out George Washington's firing still exists to this very day? And he said to me, what makes you think it doesn't? (laughs) And I was like, that's a good idea for a fictional book. I'm going to make that my fictional book. But I couldn't shake the story. And eventually that story became the nonfiction version because I was like, there's so much more to tell. So I have a fictional plot that takes place with George Washington's firing, and I have a nonfiction book. It delves deep into it, 50 pages of footnotes. They're totally different genres. One is true and one is totally made up, but they both are my obsession. That's why I went down there.
2: Ah. So what happens next? And, and maybe it's different for fiction or nonfiction. Um, do you do you start doing research? Do you take notes? Do you just start writing? Is it uh, on a laptop? Um, what's your process look like? For fiction and non or for both? Well, either one yeah, or both, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you for the fiction, and that's the easier one, because because nonfiction, you just really have to follow the story, right? The story is what the story is, and you follow it. You research and you follow it. But for for me, I on a, on the fictional thriller side, I will outline 50 to 100 pages. I'll write those 50 pages, then I'll outline the next 50 pages, and that's what keeps it spontaneous to me. You know, I'll be sitting in the shower, and I'll be going, wait a minute. Wait a minute! This person is working with this person. They're teamed up, and then it, and then it's evolving logically. I always know the ending, though. I know who done it. I don't think you can write a who done it without knowing who to leave out of the room while the done it is happening. So I always know that. But um, other than that, I again, I like being surprised. That's the fun to me.
2: And what's uh, what's your preference? Are you an early morning writer, an evening writer, or is it whenever you? get inspired what's that look like
0: um you know i write there. i think at night i'm just a night owl that's just how i am but ever since i had kids i write all during the day i don't write at night at all like now i treat it like a job um because i and, and i probably even need to now because in my 20s i'm like yeah i'm gonna stay up all night and write a book it's gonna be great and i can't do that anymore that's that's for young people um, no, no, all kidding aside. I mean, that's what I, and that, so yeah, I just, I go where the day takes me. I start about, you know, nine 30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I write until two 30 until I peter out and then I see where I go. Mm.
2: This might come off as a very odd question to the listener. I think you'll get it. Uh, are you a Def Leppard fan?
0: Of course. Well, yeah, <laughs> so I know why you asked that. Um, so yeah, in the, in the, just to, so I can explain it to other people. So throughout the book, you'll see, you know, Zig is very into his music and he has particular music he plays at all different times. There's Prince song that shows up. There's like, you know, everything from like "Pocketful full of kryptonite and spin doctors to like, you know, in the final scene is a key Def Leppard moment. <laughs> um, and yeah. Oh, I remember calling in. I remember when Def Leppard first like was completely the rock and band. I remember calling into the radio station because that was the only way to hear a song and just ask them to play the song over and over. I literally hang up and then call back again because I just wanted to hear the song. So yes, Def Leppard uh, works
2: for me. Yes. I have very fond memories of, uh, of seeing photograph on MTV and they used to have those Friday night video fights. And I don't know if you remember that. Oh, you yeah. I remember call that in the information. And, oh yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. I made, made many calls myself. Uh, I wanna uh, I wanna make sure I ask you this because this is this is an incredible story and, and feel free to go in as much detail or as little as you want. But can you tell us about the story behind the missing nine eleven flag?
0: This was a crazy story. Um, I went to the History Channel and said I'm gonna do a TV show where we use the TV show as a modern day wanted poster. I'm gonna tell the story of historical artifacts and I'm gonna offer ten thousand dollars for you to bring them back, and someone's gonna bring it back when I talk about it. And History Channel said to me at the time, are you going to really find stuff? And I said, we're going to find stuff. I said, whatever we think we're going to find, we're never going to find them. And whatever we think is never going to show up, that's what's going to show up. And they're like, okay, Brad, whatever you say. And I really did think that's, that's how it always is. Life, That's how life is, right? And the very first episode airs of Lost History on the History Channel. And I tell the story of the 9-11 flag, the famous flag that the firefighters raised at ground zero. We all know the famous photograph of them raising that flag. What no one knew, or very few people knew, was that within 24 hours, that flag went missing, and no one knew where it was. And we basically aired the first episode. Within uh, four days' time, a man walks into a fire station in Washington State, in Everett, Washington, and says, I saw the show Lost History. I have the 9-11 flag. I want to bring it back. And for a year, I couldn't tell anyone the story. We had to hide the fact that we had it because we were authenticating it, work with the the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit. And I got to unveil that flag on the anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 museum where it's still on display. And people sent me, you know, someone sent me a picture of a, a, a veteran who fought in Pearl Harbor saluting the flag. To be and play even a small part in that, I mean, I make up crap for a living. I could never make up that story. It, is, it was so crazy and amazing that it happened. And I said, we'll find something, but we won't find this. And again, it was just so much luck and happenstance. And you know, even the, the little clips that you put on a flag, those little kind of like uh, things you have to use your thumb to open. If it was a regular, if they were regular clips, we'd never authenticate it because everyone has the same silver clips. It just so happened what we saw in these high def video camera images that we had is they were homemade, they didn't match. And it was a detail no one in the world had. We were the only ones who had it. So when they brought it back, we could check, and we were like, "Oh crap, it's the same one." We could do the authentication of the dust that was in the flag, Um, and each thing, each time we got to another layer, we were like, "Oh my gosh, we think this is it." And and for it to work out the way it did again was just one of the most amazing moments and humbling moments of my life.
2: It's it's just an incredible story. It really is. Uh, You know, we'll we'll have links. Uh, People have to watch that episode because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's all, it's almost unbelievable. Uh, Did you know, did you have a a gut feeling in the beginning that that was the flag or were you being slowly convinced as more and more tests were being done? You know, it's
0: funny. I'm, I'm always the, I want to, it's how I approach almost every, every historical mystery we went after is like, I want to believe them all, but I'm like, show me the proof. Like, talk's cheap. Everyone makes a promise. Everyone's like, I got a story for you. I got the real this. I I had I had Abraham Lincoln's um, killer is, of course, John Wilkes Booth. And John Wilkes Booth's family, through uh, their lawyer, contacted me years and years ago and said, hey, um, the family of John Wilkes Booth, everyone knows, uh, got killed 12 days after he shot Abraham Lincoln. This is the family of John Wilkes Booth. They want to tell you that the wrong guy was shot, their relative got away, and they have the proof. You want to talk to them. Yes, I want to talk to those people um, because I want to hear the story. But but again, that's a great story, but show me the evidence. Now show me the proof. So I always approach everything the same. I I remember, I don't think I was convinced until it got out of the, the forensic testing, like the testing for the dust, because what they explained to me at the time was the dust that's you found on things in 9-11 when the towers fell, it wasn't just metal and rebarb and and wood and whatever else in those buildings. What was also mixed in there were human remains. And they said, you can't recreate that particular 9-11 dust without recreating 9-11, right? It's jet fuel and it's body parts and it's this, this, this amalgamation of just horrors and when that came back, that's when I was like, remember the, the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit said to me, Brad, this flag is now more authenticated than most Rembrandts and museums. And I was like, what's wrong with the Rembrandts and museums? <laughs> right. But it was just incredible to, and when the, and when they finally said that, when I, I I just watched him the whole time, I was like, when you're convinced, I'm convinced you're the expert. And finally he was like, this is it. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. Wow. Wow.
2: Well, I'd like to maybe wrap up our conversation with a, with a fun question with uh, just, you can answer it however you want. You've been in this business a long time. Uh, The publishing industry is in constant change. Our world's been changed a lot over the past couple of years. What do you see? uh, What's the industry look like a year, two years, five years from now?
0: Oh God, that is a good question. Um, The one thing I know about publishing is it refuses to change. That's the flaw of publishing. You know, I have a buddy who was a uh, consultant, and he said that of all the businesses he's ever consulted for, nothing was more backwards than publishing. Um, So, you know, I, I think we're seeing over and over, you know, it used to be, I guess, maybe back in the day, you could write your book and then you hand your book over to the publisher, and the publisher just says, "Thank you, and I'll take it," and you can go be a recluse. J.D. Salinger will take care of the rest. And as we all know, those days are gone. You know, every author has to be their own best marketer and their own best publicity machine and their own best everything. And we have amazing teams of people who, are, you know, we have the have the best publicists in the whole business that I work with. I love and adore them. It's just even they are being pulled at every angle that you, you know, you have to keep doing it for yourself. And I think you're, you know, sadly just seeing more and more of that. I think it becomes, as a result, it's just harder and harder for people to break through and find new books. Uh, You know, I remember when I first, this is the 25th anniversary of me doing this. My very first book was on the shelf and the day it came out, even though no one was buying it, but my family, it sat right next to John Grisham on the front stand at those bookstores because there were plenty of books there. There were plenty of books. We all had, we all had, you know, yes, John Grisham had a better shot than I did because it was established, but my book sat right next to his because people shopped in bookstores and they would browse and see John Grisham's and they'd see mine and a percentage of people would say, I'll try this one. And when you, everyone's buying their books online, we're just not browsing and seeing that as much anymore. And Those of us who fight for, you know, independent bookstores and things like that don't just fight because we want the local guy to win, I fight for it also because of this, the diversity of ideas that come from an independent bookstore, even from a Barnes and Noble, even from any it, it real you know, brick and mortar bookstore, it allows people to come in and see something they would never otherwise see. And that is vital and I, I hate seeing that slowly wither.
2: Well, man, where do we even start with Brad, dude?
1: That's what I was gonna say. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> like there, there was there was so much he talked about. Where I'm just like, this was just such a fascinating interview. You know, I, I guess let's start at the beginning. And um, yeah, the band book conversation was. I mean, that was just that was so crazy. <laughs> you know, like it's. Uh, I don't even know what to say. Like it's just it's just crazy that happened to him and. Um, you know, how, and going through that and stuff. And especially the books that were banned, like I get it. Like he, and he even said, you know, they have stuff has to be screened, you know, like I, I don't want, um, yeah, I, I understand the idea of like, yeah, I have a seven year old. Like I don't want necessarily like books showing up in her school library that shouldn't be there, but also at the same time, like who's determining what should and shouldn't be there. That's, and that to me, that's the more important and bigger question.
2: That's always been my issue. Uh, I I don't want to get on a free speech soapbox but as soon as you determine if something's appropriate or inappropriate it's all over it's game over because who makes that decision and you know so it, I I don't know there's there's no there's no easy way around it but I I loved his response uh I, I went and watched some of the Kelly Clarkson interview that that he did when uh when this all broke and I just love the fact that he decided to go and buy, <laughs> buy books for everyone in that, in that district. Like, that's just a class act. I loved it.
1: Yeah. I wish I could remember the exact quote he said in there, but it was, you know, basically he was talking about how it's just when people ban books, it's just to like forward their own narrative type of thing. And that's true. Like yeah. people, it's, you know, they're trying to create their own echo chambers and, and stuff, you know, so, but, um, I t- so, uh, you probably remember this because I know you love the History Channel. But one of my favorite shows that's probably been off the air for 10 years now, maybe more, was Cities of the Underworld. Yes, I loved that show. I think it was on for like three seasons or something. So, hearing him talk about, like, oh, I got to go under Disney and I got to go under you know, I think he said the White House, maybe, or uh, and then and then talking about these hidden warehouses. You know where if um, there's like what what do you say a biochemical attack or um, it, the, yeah we'd be we'd be able to get the antidote you know I was like I don't, I think it's similar to my idea of why I love post apoc so much I love thinking about how the world could be in the future it's also amazing to think that there are literally civilizations under us in, in some places you know. I mean, you and I, you, you and I, we did the underground Seattle tour, you know, and, and it was, it was pretty nuts. Like seeing, you know, basically where all this people lived and stuff, you know, and it's, uh, I don't know. That was really fascinating. And I have to say, I'm pretty jealous that he got to see some of that stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I won't spoil the, the lightning rod, his new book is, is amazing. Um, it's, it's everything you would expect, a a high, you know, a high impact, tense thriller to be uh clearly brad has you know decades of experience um and and uh i i you know i really it really made sense when he uh, when he talked about you know the process of writing and i've thought i've been thinking a whole lot more about that and i've honestly been i'm not going to say pantsing but i've been plotting a lot less
1: i was going to ask you about this you know because he he brought a really interesting approach to it he did like i mean so because I was thinking about a lot of the conversations we've had around plying and pantsing and, you know, and, and him, he really had a hybrid approach, which I hadn't heard before. Mm -hmm. Like anyone bring up, which was super simple. Like I plot the next 50 pages. So like there's, I think he said 50 pages or something like that, or several chapters or something like, um, so I'm still like, I know where I'm going, but you know, I've still gained surprise along the way and I can make those adjustments as I go and find the story. Like I, what were your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I, I was, I've been really fascinated with it because, uh, I, I'm, 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 I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm not in a position to start a new novel anytime soon. So it's something I, I have a little bit of, uh, time to think about. The flip side to that is I just finished a, um, a thriller novel by a, a pretty, I'm not going to say who, but it was like, it's a, a trad pub, like pretty reputable author name. And the, my, I got about halfway through it. I'm like, they're totally pants in this book. Like yeah. it's all over the place. Like there, there was a, a 10 to 15,000 word detour that added nothing to the story. And I'm like, is this, is this the flip side? Like, you know, I, I, I get that. Like, if you don't know where the story's going you're going to be as excited as the reader but on the flip side you know you go off on these tangents and down these rabbit holes and they're not interesting and and i think
1: that's the that's the other side of it so i i don't know what i think about it yeah and i i know it's i know it's also interesting as like someone who wrote a book on plotting <laughs> you know that like I'm, I'm, I'm seriously though. I know that that's weird. Like it, I know that there's a part that's like, well, can I change this at this point because of this book? But at the same time, you know, three story method is not, is not just about your global story. Like we also talk about the three C's on a scene level and stuff like things that still. So yeah, I'm I, like, it's, it's really interesting. And, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, our processes can change, you know, and, and you're, Uh, you know you're interviewing all these different people and hearing all this different stuff so i totally get it and like i said with this you know i think for friends of ours you know i won't um call lawn or anybody like that out like you know but like this is kind of like a good happy medium type thing where you could think ahead a little bit but like not have to think about your whole story or your whole series or whatever like just just enough where you're not like writing yourself in circles and having to, I don't know. It was really, it was really interesting.
2: Yeah. And I don't necessarily see it. Um, I, I because we, we never really, we never really said three story method was strictly a plotting tool. No, right. It's, it, it's an analysis right now. Yeah. We believe that if you plan, if you use it to, to plan a little bit, it's going to be much more effective, but it was, it's, it's never been a strictly a, a planning tool and it's something you can apply after the fact. But I, um, yeah. Yeah. It's just given, you know, it, it has given me more, more to think about. And, and I, you're right. Like, I think if you have a growth mindset and you're constantly studying, you're constantly learning some things you believe are going to change. I think that's, that's just a natural part of, of living.
1: Do you, uh, is it, is this process, you know, I'll ask you a similar question that you asked Brad. Um, is it kind of a similar thing with fiction and nonfiction?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Like, I I, I think for – it depends on what kind of nonfiction you're talking about. Like, I I could see a memoir being much – like, I I could see someone writing a memoir much the way Brad writes his fiction and planning, you know, a little bit ahead. I think if you're writing a how-to book, that I think you kind of have to start with a structure. Like, you – because what you're trying to do is you're trying to take someone from A to B and you're showing them how to do that. And just to kind of riff on that um, wouldn't feel very efficient. So I think it would depend on what type of nonfiction book you're talking about
1: imagine uh imagine the government coming to you and being like how would terrorists attack us like that that was just that was crazy too and i can also see him being nervous like wait why are they calling me again yeah <laughs> yeah and well, i i it's a weird I, position to be in i remember
2: i think it was years ago i remember him being on altar show talking about that and I, and i just i was like i can't even believe the government does that like i I couldn't believe that they would reach out to, you know, a novelist or a filmmaker or, or, or something like that, and and ask their opinion on it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you, like, you you really have no idea the impact that your art is going to have. Like, uh, we've talked before how, like, you know, um, our childhood maybe more mine more so than yours. Like, you know, the creative side wasn't wasn't really valued by my parents it wasn't like considered real work and then you hear stories like you know brad being called up by homeland security to talk about possible terrorist threats and you're like you know maybe there is some value to this art stuff this crazy artistic thing that we do
1: there is in the arts and you know also i mean that kind of has translated to like just i think kind of nerd co- culture overall has totally shifted like since the 80s i would say like you know or even since i was a kid you know like Nerds and people who think about this sort of stuff kind of rule the world now, <laughs> in, in this highly tech world we live in. So, um, you know, I can't imagine uh, the calls Andy Weir is probably going to get once aliens <laughs> start coming or something. Yeah, From NASA, yeah, like him and him and Ridley Scott are probably already working on that stuff. I would imagine so. But uh, yeah, it it's just it's just crazy. So they, yeah, this was a this was an amazing interview. I mean, it was full of a lost it, We didn't even talk about the flag like the whole nine that whole thing about finding the 911 flag and how they authenticated it and um I mean I got chills when he was talking about the dust and all that I mean it was uh just what a bunch of cool stuff this dude's doing <laughs> I mean he's just doing a lot of really really cool things and um you know honestly kind of like just living the dream author life I think a lot of people think of where you get to spend your day to day like doing what you love and he kind of Really, was, I mean, you can tell he's really doing what interests him and really what he wants to be doing. So it was it was very inspirational in that way and just really awesome.
2: It was. I had so much fun talking to I could have talked to him for two hours. Uh, it was really hard to keep that conversation on the rails because he's just done so much and was so gracious in, in his approach. And uh, it was just, it, yeah, it was a really easy interview to do. Uh, and I really appreciate Brad for making it that way. And it also yeah. made me feel good too. That uh, even his kids don't really care or know what he's doing,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> my, I know my daughter will get to that point. She's still like now is will tell everyone her daddy's an author and writes zombie books and stuff. Like, so kids at the park will run up to me asking me all kinds of stuff. But uh, I know that'll fade eventually. So, but uh, yeah, big big thanks to Brad for coming on. That was a that was a great interview. So uh, so Jay not D, who uh, who we got coming up next week? Next week. This is a good one. Is Is
2: another good one. Gillian Flynn is coming on the show. Can you believe that?
1: Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. I'm really, uh, really excited. Really excited about this one. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I don't know how you could know, but if you don't know, uh, Gillian, uh, she wrote Gone Girl. Wrote the screenplay for Gone Girl. Yeah. Uh, just a phenomenal writer. Another super talented individual. And uh, you don't. Yeah, you're not gonna want to miss this one. It's gonna be another great interview. All right, well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.